Um, so we're looking at Matthew chapter 23. We're going to read uh, starting from verse 13 and following. It says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by, every, uh, by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgent. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, so something you might not know about me, hidden talent, I'm a bird whisperer. Now, if you're new, maybe you're thinking to yourself, He's crazy. If you're not new, you'd say to yourself, well, I've known that for a long time. But I'm a bird whisperer. My mom is a dog whisperer. You know, she always finds, somehow she finds herself with like sick dogs or cats that are attracted to her, and she helps a lot of those animals. For me, it's birds. Uh, for example, several years ago, I was driving down the road, and it was super, super cold, and I see this pigeon that's walking on the side of the road. And, you know, again, it was like maybe 10 degrees, super frigid cold, and he's just walking along. I'm like, this doesn't seem right. And so I pull over the car, I go and I pick him up, take him, put him in the back of the car, take him home. I still lived at my parents' house at that point. And I get one of my, my mom's chairs from the kitchen, put it in the living room, 
and I propped this bird up on the chair, and he watched TV with me. <laughs> he just sat there. He was just so calm and, and, and cool. I thought, I thought he really liked me, but it turned out he was starving, and, you know, he didn't have any strength. So I, uh, I, I started to feed him, and I fed him for like about a week or so, and then I ended up, you know, I was like, okay, this is my new pet. And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to give him some fresh air. And as soon as he saw daylight, it, he was gone. And, but this, it wasn't the first time this had happened. I had, I've, you know, found pigeons, uh, seagull, uh, woodpecker, chickadee, house finch, all different types of birds, somehow they've found their way to me. And usually I don't rehab them myself, but I'll, you know, bring them to someone who's, you know, rehabs them. So I'm pretty comfortable with birds. I'm not afraid of, you know, most birds. So several years ago, before I was married, um, we went on, me and my wife went on a trip with my parents to Florida. And we all did this dolphin cruise, dolphin watch cruise. And so as we were on this cruise, there was this heron and it was hanging out on the shore, and you could tell like it, something wasn't right. It was just sitting there for an extended period of time. And we looked, and it had a fishing line that was wrapped around its beak. And the crew told us that you know, it had been there for quite some time. They had seen this particular bird, and it was just kind of sad because it, it was losing its strength. It was going to die if it didn't eat soon. And so somebody, I don't know if it, I think it was my mom, said, Oh, Matthew is really good with birds. And somehow I got volunteered or volunteered myself into this mission to rescue this heron. And I was kind of excited about it. I'm like, I'm going to be the hero. There's this boat of people, uh, you know, and I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to save this bird and do this good deed. And then somebody in the crew said to me, you need to be really careful when you you get this bird because um, this bird, it hunts by spearing. And, you know, it's got this long beak. And it hunts by spearing. So you need to be careful. Like, you need to really make sure you grab its neck or it's going to hurt you. Suddenly, I wasn't so confident anymore. This was not, you know, a three-ounce chickadee. This was not, a, you know, a little sparrow. Like, this was a bird that had a sword for a beak. But I didn't tell anyone that. I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get this bird. And so I'm all ready to go. I'm ready to get, uh, you know, all the, the adrenaline is flowing. And so we start to pull over to, to get this bird, and right when we get near there, he uses the last bit of strength that he has to fly away, so we couldn't catch him. Now, part of me was relieved because I didn't want my eyes to be gouged out. <laughs> but the other part of me, I was sad because this was the bird's last chance, really. And, you know, obviously it didn't realize that I was there to help it. And it ran from the only thing, only person, me, had an opportunity to save it. And I'm sure that, you know, it died shortly thereafter. But I wonder, if, have you ever met people that were kind of like that? Like, you experience it a lot with kids. Like the other day, it was almost time to go to my son's hockey practice. And I get his coat and I go into his room. And he, he doesn't like coats. I don't know. Most kids, I don't think, like coats. And this particular coat is really cold out and it's like this big puffy coat. And so he doesn't want to put the coat on. And then that turns into like not wanting to put his shoes on. And it's like, I don't want to go to hockey. I don't want to do anything. And so I'm like, here, you know, here's a choice. You know, either you can go to your room and hang out there, or we can 
Have a nice day. I'm going to my room. I'm tired. So we go to, he goes to his room. And then, you know, after a few minutes, I go up there and, you know, it's getting to the point where we're going to miss hockey practice. And I said, here's the options. Like, you can go and make good choices. You can change your attitude. We can go and we can have a great day. You can go to hockey. You can get a snow cone after. You know, we can get some lunch. Have an awesome day. Or you can continue making bad choices and you can just hang out here. It's pretty simple. Like, just change your attitude. I'm not asking you to do anything crazy. Just put on your coat. But he wouldn't do that. He just stayed in his room. Then, of course, you know, a little while later, after it was too late to go to hockey practice, he said, oh, I'm ready to change my attitude. But sometimes, you know, people do that. It's like, it seems like the answer is so clear. You know, it's not, it's not just kids. You know, adults do the same thing. It's like people, you know, will make really bad choices, and then they'll find themselves in a really bad situation. And from the outside, it will look like so easy and so clear, like you just need to like get out of this relationship or you, know, you need to just, just repent of what is you know, consuming your life, give up this addiction or you know, give up this gambling, give up this uh, wasting this money, whatever it is. It's like so simple from the outside, and yet somehow they don't see it. They don't, they don't realize it. And so maybe you know, if there's someone like that in your life where you know, maybe they're close to you. Maybe you feel like you need to reach out to them, and maybe you reach out to them, and initially it goes really well. You know, you share your concerns and and things to try to help them, and and maybe they express some um, openness to it. Then maybe a week goes by, and they're back to their old patterns. They're in trouble again. They're making the same bad choices, and then you, 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 know, you try to bring them out of it. And then you see the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. Maybe you get to a point, you know, if you're walking with that person for some time, maybe you get to a point where it's like you just get frustrated. Where maybe at the beginning you're trying to, like, talk really gently and really, you know, kind of hold back a little bit. You don't want to hurt their feelings. Maybe by the end it's like, you know, you got to wake up. Like, you're going to die or you're going to find yourself in some really deep trouble Like, you need to change, and you're not pulling any punches anymore. Sometimes they'll change, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just go back to their old patterns. Then sometimes, you know, maybe you get to a point where it's just like, you're demoralized. You're just sad. It's like, you can't do anything about it, but you're just sad because you can't change them. You know what they would need to do to change, but you can't do the changing for them. And so you're in this place where you just kind of feel helpless. You feel this sadness. If you've ever experienced anything remotely like that, Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. Jesus came to the earth, and of course, he preached the kingdom of God, the gospel. Some people get it and enter into the kingdom of God. Other people are, are kind of perplexed by the things that Jesus says. And then you have other people that outwardly oppose the gospel, specifically the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, people who have their base of operation in Jerusalem. And so he faces this opposition, and he again, you know, gives them parables. He gives them uh, instructions to repent, and yet they don't change. They don't see it. And I think it kind of reaches a fever pitch in Matthew chapter 23 here, where Jesus is not holding back anything anymore. 
I mean, we don't know exactly the mindset, like the emotional mindset that Jesus has in this passage because we don't have a, a videotape of Jesus saying these things. But given kind of the tone, the words that are used, uh, the way that there's kind of a fast, accelerated language, it appears that he is just livid in this passage. I would suggest he's probably either raising his voice or outrightly yelling. Because despite what all he's done, despite the miracles, despite all of his teaching, many people just reject it outright. And so he gets to this point where he's just frustrated. He speaks all of these woes to the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. He repeats seven woes. And then he gets to the point where it just seems like, you know, it turns from anger to sadness. Gets to a point where uh, in uh, verse 37, where again, we don't know his emotional mindset, but I think just kind of given the the tone where it slowed down and just the context here, it seems like uh, I would suggest there could even be tears in his eyes as he's saying these things. Of course, we don't know that for sure, but seems that he's turned to sadness, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate to you. Remember the parable Jesus told a little bit earlier in Matthew chapter 21, uh, the parable of a man who plants a vineyard and leases it out to tenants. And then the time of harvest comes, and he sends his servants to partake of the harvest and says that the tenants, they murdered, they stoned, they rejected those who came. So then the the master sends more servants, and the same thing happens. They they kill him, they put him to death. And then he says, I'll send my son, maybe they'll respect my son. And then we know that they put his son to death as well. That's what's happening with Israel here. The prophets have been sent to Israel. They've been stoned. They've been killed. They've been beaten. The messengers of God have been rejected. And now the religious establishment is rejecting Jesus. And it seems like this just brings incredible sorrow to the heart of God. And we see that what Jesus is longing for is he's longing for restoration for them. He's longing not to, to take something from Israel, but that Israel would find their joy, that find their strength in him. Like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. I, he says, I've longed to gather you together so that I would be your refuge, so that I would be your protection, so that I would be your delight. But he says, you weren't willing. Says how often? It's a word that only appears a few times in the New Testament, but it appears in Matthew chapter eighteen, verse twenty-one, when Peter asks the question, uh, "Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times." Remember when Peter was asking that question, like, "How often do I have to put up with people? How often do I have to show grace to people?" And yet Jesus, contrast in a contrast to that, says. How often have I wanted to show grace? How often have I wanted to bring you into the household? It's not a one-time thing. It's not like a passing idea. It's like almost like an everyday thing. I want to bring you into my household. I think of the image of the prodigal son and the father in that story who probably got up every morning and, and hoped maybe today 
is the day that my son will come back home. Jesus said, how often, continually, have I longed to bring you home, and yet you were not willing. He wants them to find their rest in him. And Jesus says, see your house is left desolate. Now, it would have been interesting that Jesus says that because at this time, it's around Passover, there would have been thousands, tens of thousands, up to, you know, some scholars estimate, you know, up to 100,000, even, you know, high estimates, 200,000. There were a lot of people in Jerusalem. And they're buying things, they're selling things, they're going to and fro. It was the last thing from desolate. There was a lot of activity happening, but Jesus says, see, your house is left desolate. Why does he say that? I think... There's two possible reasons. Number one, in his mind, he already sees what's coming. He knows that Jerusalem is going to be ransacked in 70 AD. He knows that the temple is going to be destroyed. And so his, his mind, it's like, see, it's like it's already happened. The judgment is already coming. But also, I think even more uh, importantly, it's desolate because God's left the temple. And see, as Jesus leaves the temple here, it's symbolically a picture of, of God leaving the temple. That God is changing in a way how he relates to people. That no longer is God going to dwell in a temple made by hands or manifest himself in that way. Because there's activity in the temple, there's activity in Jerusalem, but there's no life. God is not there. There's land, but there's no fruit. And so Jesus sees that. He sees the judgment that's coming. And it just drives him to sadness. How often have I longed to bring you home, and yet you were not willing. So what does this passage mean to us? How does this apply to us today as believers? I think there's a few things that we can grab a hold of for today. The number one, sadness doesn't equal failure. Sadness doesn't equal failure. Jesus is filled with a deep sadness in this passage, but that doesn't mean that he's failed. Jesus has done everything that he could humanly speaking, to, to reach these Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. He's preached the gospel. He's shown love to them. He's done everything, and yet they have chosen to walk away. And I think this is something that's important to get our minds around because the famous um, writer Ernest Hemingway once said this. He said, what is moral is what you feel good about after, and what is immoral is what you feel bad about after. Now, there's an element of truth to that in that, you know, if we do something that is wrong, you know, we have the testimony of our conscience, and if we're believers, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, and so there's this unsettled uh, feeling in our hearts, and so, you know, maybe we feel bad about something that we've done, um, and so there's an element of truth to that, but as kind of a, a standard of morality, I think it's kind of pretty bad advice, because Jesus in this passage he does all the right things, but he's still sad. He still feels bad about it. But just because he's sad doesn't mean that he's failed. He's done all of the right things. He wanted to be the refuge and that they are not willing. And I think sometimes we need to be careful that our sadness isn't mistaken for guilt. Because there's a difference between guilt and and sadness, because sometimes there'll be people in our lives where it's like, we do all of the right things. We pray for them, we love them, 
We share the gospel with them. We try to get them to, to, to get on the right path, and despite doing that, they'll just walk away saying, I'm not interested. That doesn't mean that we've failed. Doesn't necessarily mean we've done something wrong. You know, we can ask questions like, have I done everything that I could? And in that, maybe, you know, we, we recognize, like, maybe we did say something wrong at one point, or maybe we did something wrong, and maybe we need to apologize to them for that, or, or ask God for forgiveness. But assuming we've done those things, and it's like we've done everything that we can, the responsibility doesn't lie with us. We might be sad. We don't want them to live in that place. We want them to change, but it doesn't mean that it's our fault. They have to make their own decisions. And I think this is really important because I think Satan can use this, if we're not careful, to try to demoralize us. I think sometimes what Satan can do is he can look at, you know, maybe people we've tried to help, and, you know, maybe he could tell us things like, hey, they're worse off than when they met you. Like, you must have messed up that situation badly somehow. Or maybe they'll say, well, or maybe Satan will say, well, you know, look at all of this time and energy that you've invested in this relationship, and it didn't make any difference. Like, it was useless. And what is Satan trying to get us to do in that? He's trying to get us to give up, to let go. See, that's what happens when he tries to make it into a guilt thing. That like, okay, you know, this person isn't changing, and it's your fault. He's trying to get us to give up. Now, we can feel a deep sadness over, you know, somebody's life situation, the choices that they're making, they're walking away from God. But that should drive us further to our knees. That should cause us to pray harder for them. That should cause us to do everything in our power to reach out to them doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. doesn't mean that it's our responsibility to, to fix their life, that, that, that person and, and God's work in their life. But we do everything that we can, and we need to be careful that we don't allow Satan to use a false guilt against us in that way. Also, I think we need to realize as well that there's a difference between sowing and reaping. Jesus said that one man sows, another man reaps. So last year I did a vegetable garden. It was the first time I had done one in about 10 years. And uh, I'll tell you what, the, kind of the sowing part about it wasn't very fun. You know, I started in March, started with little seeds. And, I, you know, you had those little packets where you have to put the water in and then the, you know, the, then the soil kind of grows up, blows up. And that wasn't fun. You know, it's just kind of a tedious, you know, having to, to make sure they're in the right spot, make sure you know where each one is. But then when you get to July and August, when you can go out and like have a dozen cucumbers and share them with people around you, I mean, that's where the joy is. Doesn't mean, you know, the sowing is important. You have to have the sowing without the reaping, but there's joy in the reaping, not necessarily in the sowing. And so in regard to the people in our lives, there's some people in our lives that maybe we're just sowing the seed and maybe we'll never see that, that harvest, doesn't mean that the sowing isn't important. doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. Jesus means it's, it's not as enjoyable. It's not as fun as reaping the harvest. And so we need to be careful not to allow our sadness to equate to failure and to allow the enemy to use that. I think the second thing that we learn in this passage is that we have a reminder not to grieve the Holy Spirit. When we look at this passage, I feel like 
you know, it's easy to be kind of judgmental in retrospect. You know, we look on these religious leaders and it's like, I mean, they had every opportunity to know Jesus. They saw all these miracles. They had every opportunity and still they rejected him. And, and sometimes it's easy to kind of look with judgment upon them. But I think there's times, even as believers, that we can grieve the heart of God. Just like these religious leaders grieved the heart of Christ, we can also grieve the heart of God. Ephesians 4, 28 to 30 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. As believers, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And there's some of us who are maybe grieving the Holy Spirit even today. And maybe if Jesus were here with us today, just like he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, maybe he would say to us, oh, fill in your name. Oh, Matthew, Matthew. Oh, John, John. Oh, Mary, Mary. And, and he might say different things to, to us. He might say, how often would I have freed you from the bondage of fear? And yet you allowed it to consume you and you wouldn't come to me. Or how often has your heart been filled with anxiety? How often did I want to take that load from you? But you wouldn't do it. You would continue to carry that burden yourself. Or how often... Would I have freed you from the bondage of pornography, but you weren't willing? Or how often did I want you to forgive this person in your life? This person that, you know, this bitterness that's just holding on to your heart. How often did I want to free you from that? And you, you held on to that unforgiveness. Or, or how often did I want to free you from this, I, this spirit of negativity and complaining, but you weren't willing? Or how often did I want to meet with you? How often did I long for you to be in my presence? How, long, how often did I long for you to delight in me? And yet you were too busy. I think there's many ways that we can grieve God's heart. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And I think when we think about sin, we often think about it as in a legal sense. And there's a sense in which it's illegal, you know, it's breaking God's, what God has spoken in his word. And so there's a legal sense to that. But the heart of it is that it's also a relational issue. That sin is wrong because, yes, it goes against what God has spoken, but it's also wrong because it breaks down relationships. Breaks down a relationship with God, breaks down a relationship with other people. You think about it like, say, if, if say a man was going to have an affair, they go and have an affair... It's a legal issue. It's like they've done something that is inherently wrong. But even bigger than that, it's a relational issue. They've broken the relationship. And anytime we sin, it's not simply, oh, I broke a rule. It's I broke God's heart. That my actions are either breaking down the relationships with those around me or hindering my relationship with God. And so sin is legal, but it's also relational. Milton S. Agnew, a, a Salvation, of Army, Salvation Army writer, once said this, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, commands Paul. 
Now only a dear friend can be grieved. Not a stranger, he might be annoyed. Not a chance acquaintance, he might be perplexed. Not a business partner, he might be offended. Only a loved one can be grieved. Because we have that relationship with Christ, because we're believers, we, have, we, we can grieve God's heart. And so we need to be careful that we don't grieve God's heart. Final application I think we can learn from this passage is, is that there's hope on this side of heaven. There's always hope. Jesus concludes the pronouncements of woe and his statements of sadness with a rather curious phrase, statement he says in verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is Jesus saying here? I mean, there's two kind of views that you can take of this passage. Uh, on the one hand, some people believe that this is talking about an end times event where at the end of time, uh, many Jewish people, the majority of Jewish people will come and they will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, other people would say that this is not a prediction, but a condition. That if Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, if Israel recognizes the Messiah, you know, then there'll be hope, restoration. I'm, I'm not 100% sure which one he's talking about in this passage. I would tend to lead towards the second, but I'm not really sure. But Jesus, I believe, he gives this condition that if you recognize me, then there will be restoration. It's just a glimmer of hope. Yes, judgment is coming, and again, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in 70 AD. The temple establishment is going to be done away with. Yes, judgment is coming, but there's this just little glimmer of hope here. After this, after Jesus speaks these words, not too long after, he's headed to the cross. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be, uh, have a crown of thorns put on his head. He's going to be brutalized. He's going to, be, he's going to die the death of the worst criminal. He's going to be considered to be cursed by God. But then he's going to rise again. Given his statements here in chapter 23, here's what I would expect Jesus to say as he appears to disciples, I would expect to him to say, go anywhere but here. Go anywhere but Jerusalem. Because these are the people that killed me. These are the people that rejected the prophets. Go anywhere. Go to Galilee. Go to Samaria. Go to the end of the world. Go anywhere but here. But what does Jesus say in Acts chapter 1 as he appears to the disciples? He says, don't leave Jerusalem. Then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem was the first place to receive the gospel. After this, Peter gives this incredible speech, 3,000 people come to know Christ and were baptized. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God wasn't done with Jerusalem. Even though there was a judgment that was coming, even though, you know, there were still many in Jerusalem that rejected Jesus, he wasn't done. And he holds out that hope to anyone who receives him. Anyone who says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Anyone who recognizes that he is who he says he is. There's still hope. 
I'm blown away by the grace that Jesus shows in this passage. You'd think that he'd be done with them. But after all, when we look at the things that maybe we've done in our lives, maybe we could say the same thing. You'd think that God would be done with us. And yet, this side of heaven, there's always hope. There's always grace for those who turn to him and say, Lord, be my refuge. Be my protection. Be the one that I delight in. I think we can sum up kind of the takeaway from this passage very simply. And Jesus says the words in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. These words are spoken to a church. We often use these words when talking about a believer accepting Jesus, but these are words that are spoken to believers primarily. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he he with me. God's yes is on the table. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to be our refuge. But will we say yes to that invitation? A.W. Tozer once said, God wants us to worship him. He doesn't need us. For he couldn't be a self-sufficient God and need anything or anybody. But he wants us. When Adam sinned, it was not he who cried out, God, where art thou? It was God who cried out, Adam, where art thou? We serve a God who came to seek and to save. We serve a God who didn't sit up in his throne room and said, hey, you know, if they want me, they can come find me. We serve a God who put on skin, became a little baby, became like us, became obedient even to the point of death so that we might have a relationship with him. His yes is on the table. He wants us to have that relationship with him. He wants us to have that joy and experience fellowship with him. But will we say yes? Is our yes on the table? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that even in the midst of statements of sorrow and judgment, there's glimmers of hope. That as long as we're living, we have the opportunity to turn and find grace in your arms. Lord, for those of us today who maybe are grieving your heart today. Lord, help us to realize that it's not simply breaking a rule, but it's breaking your heart. Lord, restore our fellowship with you as we turn from our sins and turn back to you. Free us from the bondage that may be holding us back from being all that you want us to be. Lord, we know your invitation is on the table. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be inclined to run to you and to find rest in your arms. In Christ's name I pray, amen.